Today's guest is a true legend of the British jazz, swing and jump blues scene. Ray Gelato was born in the swinging 60s and the streets of West London where he grew up were his playground and classroom. Son of an American soldier and Jewish mother, Ray is widely known as the godfather of swing and is perhaps the last of the great jazz entertainers. He's performed the world over at many great venues and privately for some of the most famous celebrities and royalty. And this year celebrates 25 years of the Giants band. It's for very good reason that the Giants have been a favorite at the world famous Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, holding down a 16 year residency over the prized Christmas period. Join me and Ray as we chew the fat over a cappuccino in his favorite restaurant, Little Italy Soho. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. I am this morning with the wonderful Ray Gelato from Ray Gelato and the Giants. The Giants, Ray Gelato and the Giants. So it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure and privilege to be with you here this morning, Ray. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us on your London Legacy. Uh, another podcast, another interview along along the way, I believe. You've done a few in your time. Yes, it'd be nice. always nice to do an interview, especially uh, one about London. I yeah. always enjoy talking about this place. Excellent. Well, you're a Londoner, born and bred Londoner. Indeed. Um, yeah. Just back on the flight this morning or last night, was it from Athens? I was supposed to get back from Athens early and they cancelled the flight, British Airways, a couple of weeks ago. And oh, bless them. So I, yeah, so I didn't get back till nine or eight, eight or nine. And oh, last night? So yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm a little, uh, little weary because it was very late nights out oh, there. Well, I'm even more grateful to you then for, oh, fine. for turning up. They do like the late nights in Athens, like Spain. And, and, yeah. You know, you're talking about finishing at one in the morning. Uh-huh. Then I might have a cigar. Then I might have a couple of scotches. I read so about your cigars. I'm not in bed till <laughs> three or four. You know? uh-huh. It's fine. I'm yeah. happy to be here. So you're still buzzing, are you? Or are you still sort of getting the user out of your system? You know, I'm so used to being tired, honestly, because of the late late nights and, and feeling almost slightly jet-lagged that it's just a state that I'm very used to being in, mm. you know. I do know that if I've got anything worked in administration or whatever, when I retrace my steps a couple of days later, I have made a bunch of mistakes. Right. <laughs> because of the kind of tiredness. What, any bookkeeping? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, things like that. If I pay guys, I've been known to pay guys twice. Oh, well, that's no good. They don't complain, but it's no good for me. <laughs> Well, I should say I'm not getting paid for this, so it's, uh, this is completely sort of hands-off hands situation. Well, again, thank you very much. And we're sitting in one of your well-known haunts, I believe. This is um, a restaurant bang opposite Ronnie Scott's, yeah. which is where you play regularly. Yeah, well, it's part of Bar Italia. Uh, we're not in Bar Italia now, but we're in Little Italy. Which Little is a, Italy. Uh, it's one of the finest Italian restaurants here, and it's owned by Anthony Pelleggi, uh, who's a great friend of mine who owns the Bar Italia in this. So, uh, yeah, I'm always sort of here. It's was that Anthony my... who we met on the yes, way in? Yes, yeah, okay. yeah, with the orange jumper. Okay. He's, he's, him and his dad, Nino, have, um, have had the family business for okay. many years. So let's give them a plug. So it's Bar Italia, or Bar, the Italia. Bar Italia 22 Frith yeah, Street. Yeah, as, as the song says, yeah. <laughs> You've done a song about it, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your... Uh, penning your own songs i have because they're always a little bit tongue-in-cheek sort of amusing a little bit i have written a couple of serious ones but but i do like to write something things that make people think but also smile a little mm-hmm. bit and the bar italia one was was suggested by tony he said would you think of writing a song about this place so i went on the piccadilly line went on my uh, uh, apple my mobile app that i can write the notes and i wrote the song in 10 minutes just came to me and it's got uh, thousands of uh, 90 or 100,000 hits on YouTube, which was strange. And I even get requested for it when I go to somewhere like Brazil, which was incredible. I said, how do you know about that song? Bar Italia. They said, oh, we, we heard it on the internet. <laughs> so it's wonderful. You know? No, it's fantastic. 
And there's a video that goes with it as well, isn't there? Yes. It's like quite a professionally shot video, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, there is. So how did, how did that come about? Well, when we did the song, uh, um, I think the people that run this know a couple of video people and they did the... Uh, they did the video, you know. It wasn't quite how I would have done the video, in all honesty. I, I, I envisioned, I like to be in charge of these things because I know how it works with uh -huh. the song. And I envisioned a lot of people standing outside Bar Italia. Ah, right. Cabbies, cops, whoever it is, anybody, yes. Soho people, a couple of guys on the street, whatever, and singing the song, the chorus, or at least mime into the chorus because it's recorded, which I think would have been a little, little better. But, you know, the... So it there. was mostly shot inside. I think there were some outside shots yes. around the back, it looked like. Or, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, the shots were actually is inside Bar Italia, but then the rest of the shots were shot around uh, off Berwick Street. Ah, okay. A thing like that. But yeah, I mean, well, let's say it served its purpose, the yeah. video. But I, were I they would, mostly extras? Were they, were, they, were they sort of just general members locals, of the Locals. Just locals come in? There was no extras in it at all. They, we put a, a thing out on uh, Facebook, and I think a lot of just locals turned up to be in the, uh, you know, local characters, yeah. you know. Now, it's interesting because, as I said, you do some fun ones as well. There was also one about um, put your phone down or something, which I oh, think... Get off the phone, Get off yes. the phone. Yeah. Yeah, which I think you play when yeah. I've come to see you a few times. Yes. I mean, yeah. have you got a thing about people being on their on their phones when you're yeah. talking to them? I hate it, yeah. you know, um, and I do it myself. We all so do I'm it. a complete hypocrite, yeah. you know, because the, the fact is it's addictive. And uh, the song, we, we did a video around, around that as well called Get Off The Phone, which we actually managed to, to commandeer a Piccadilly line tube so I kept asking, because I know my people at my local station, which is Northfields. I says, can we use a tube? They says, you haven't got a chance in hell. Even pro-massive bands can never do this. Yeah. But what I realized was every 10 minutes or 15 minutes, there's a ghost train that comes through the, the depot, and there's no one on it till Acton Town. Okay. So we had five minutes to shoot the tube scene. <laughs> So you could, we're, we're on the on the tube. Oh, it's a genuine, uh, right? Fantastic, absolute genuine tube. Yeah. yeah, we could have been done for it, but I, I thought, well, what's the worst they're gonna do? So yeah, it's great. But yes, the original thing about the phone. Well, yeah, I I do try to write some lyrics which are, are conducive of today because you know all the old lyrics for Sinatra stuff and the Cole Porter stuff and whatever. You can't better that stuff. You know, that's that's all about romance and lovely and, and the times that they lived it back then but now i kind of think I, I like to write about things that piss people off sometimes but in a humorous way yeah. and get off the phone yeah I, I actually told them in athens the other day because three nights we had a lovely audience so last night they were a bit noisy but i think there was a corporate table in and they're all on the phones all on the phones texting tweeting filming the band and i just said you know i try to do it in a nice way because if you're rude to the audience you alienate them mm. and i just said listen just a little bit of advice. Put the phones in your pocket for mm. two hours. I said, it's not difficult. You don't have to keep getting the phone out and tweet. They understood English perfectly. And uh, still couldn't do it. I know. It's bizarre how people have to live their life through couldn't the lens of a mobile phone. I spoke to a guy, young guy over Ronnie Scott's a couple of years ago. He was tweeting that, that on the whole time on the phone. So I went up to him. I took his phone in a joke. I says, what are you doing? And he looked, oh, I says, Get the experience. Absolutely. I says, because I try to say, I said this to the Greek people, I says, you know, I saw great musicians play. I saw Sinatra. I've seen Tony Bennett. I've seen Bill Haley in the Comets. I've seen Little Richard. I've seen Stan Getz, Lionel Hampton, Dizzy Gillespie. I was lucky enough to be slightly mm. old enough to have seen these people play abroad and at Ronnie's and clubs. And nobody would bother taking millions of pictures. So the experience of seeing this wonderful artists or even if you see what lives in your mind mm. should live in your mind and your heart of course not on a bloody screen yeah. and so i believe people are not getting the experience if they're filming the job no. and especially if they're tweeting i said to the guy why are you tweet i said what are you doing he said, i'm tweeting about the gig <laughs> why don't you enjoy the gig 
So this is my whole thing. And uh, plus, I don't like the slow walkers either. You know, when you're trying to get somewhere and you can't get past the person because they're, they're on the phone. Or the ones who are walking towards you with their head down and bump straight into oh, you. Oh, we've had that, <laughs> had that with my whole family. A girl bumped into us in Kensington Gardens with the family at Christmas and I gave her a filthy look. <laughs> and my kid says, Dad, you're so mean. Uh, but it's true. I mean, we went to a football. I don't know who your team is. Do you support anyone? Uh, no, I, you know what, Steve? I don't follow football anymore, but I used to follow QPR when I was okay. younger because well, they were my local we'll team. Al- we'll allow that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's fairly Loftus neutral in my Road, book. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a Spurs uh, fan and we were at um, Wembley the other day. And there was a woman next to us and um, she was on the phone filming the football match. And I, 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 I kid you not, the whole game she was filming the match and I thought what are you doing just watch the freaking game just watch the match it, it really is insanity it's insanity because I know that they might want the, the thing in their mind or whatever and, and it also annoys me because it's my and the guy's performance mm. and I don't feel anyone's got the right or should have the right to film the whole thing I'm always happy a couple of numbers put a number I've had fans putting up whole concerts on my wall whole mm. co- and it's so what it does it just silts my whole Facebook wall up. I don't want necessarily the whole concert to be shown. And I'll, I'll say to them, look, can you please take it down and leave one number? I'll always be polite. Mm. But I, and this isn't just me that feels this way. This is a lot of us feel, feel yeah. this Well, I way. guess, do you run your own Facebook page? I do, you unfortunately. Do, do, I, mean, so. I have a couple of admins, a couple of my agents, uh, the Italian agent doing a good admin job on it because I haven't got the time to do it all. But I do run my own page, yeah. And I, I really say, hate people putting up the whole concert. Yeah, I was going to say maybe you can just change the rules of the admin and just or take it down if if, if they don't yeah, comply yeah. with what you are. But you don't want to be too too Gestapo like, shall we say? You, you, you know, can't. It's a it's a balance, and it's also the culture. And again, as I said, if you you know on a live gig, if you get rude to the audience, I used to be much more fiery when I was younger, and I would say things not just about the phone, but if people were screaming mm. or whatever. And I find now it's far better to. Have, disarm it with humor yeah because otherwise the rest of the audience start feeling bad about it and uh, i'll never forget seeing jerry lee lewis do you remember him the piano player yes. with my father at the rainbow in finsbury park and he played all country music didn't play any of his hits uh-huh. and you know now as an artist i understand why he probably so fed up with playing great balls of fire that he played but n- none of us we were all lung teddy boys in the 70s so we didn't like it yeah. and people were booing him and he just went you know because the, the door swings both ways if you don't like it you can leave yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the whole audience really yes well, I, I remember on a far smaller scale when i was younger i went to see dex's midnight runners play a venue in kilburn i don't even think it's there anymore you, you may, you may what know. was it called oh, i can't remember because i would know those venues. i can't remember but it would have been in the early 80s i'm right. guessing and i went with a mate and of course everybody wanted to hear them play their big hit at the time yeah. whatever it was it wasn't common eileen it was whatever it was and they refused to play it and everyone went mad yeah. they just refused to play it so i'm guessing a bit like them and jerry lee lewis yeah. i mean you do you get bored playing the same because you play classic tunes as well as your own no i don't get bored and i'll tell you why because i mix it up if i did the same repertoire i did 10 years ago yes i'd get bored but I am aware that people do want to hear those five songs, Just a Gigolo, Angelina, Pizza You that I wrote, maybe by Italia, maybe that's Amore. And yeah, if I played those songs, and only those songs, I'd get out of my mind. Yeah. And that Americano song, I hate it, <laughs> but I've got to play that. 
<laughs> people like that. But but in between, we play, if you've seen it, we play some jazz. I yes. get to play my saxophone. Yes. I play things like Stardust, the other, Ollie, the other sax player. We do a little feature together, Count Basie stuff. Uh -huh. So if you mix it up, is the key. In Greece, we had a complaint because we had a smaller band and I didn't do all the Italian stuff. I refused to do just a jiggle. I thought for once, let's just see. So we did a mix of some nice, when I say jazz, I mean swinging jazz, you know, yes. Betty Goodman and stuff uh -huh. I like. I sang stuff like Old Black Magic and a few of the hits. And a lady did complain. She goes, I was waiting for three hours for Mambo Gelato. I says, but it's not this band. I yeah. said, you have to understand. But I can see their point as well. Because if I went to see Bill Haley in the Comets when I saw that years ago with my dad in the 70s, and he didn't play Rock Around the Clock, I'd be pretty angry. Yes, <laughs> so of course. you've got to see the point. And yeah. I would have been annoyed at Dex Dexy's Ruddens at that time yeah. if they didn't play the hit. Yeah. I guess if my wife, who's a mad Robbie fan, uh, Robbie Williams, that is, went to see Robbie, and she's seen him a hundred times, and he didn't play Angels, or I think he always finishes with that, I believe. She, she'd be beside herself with grief. It's totally <laughs> understandable, and it's part of your identity, and those punk songs are part of mine, and I've built them part of mine, and the audience expect them. However, we have hundreds of songs, and once in a blue moon, I'll miss one of I won't miss one of the biggies out, but I'll say Miss Baritalia, mm. or the Mambo Gelato, and I'll always get complaints. People will come up, no. We do, you, you didn't play this, but I'll often say now, was, was anything that we did? Did you like anything we played? <laughs> yes. Instead of was telling me what you did, yeah, I said, well, <laughs> instead of telling me what you didn't like, could you just tell me? I understand the audience point of view as well, yeah. because I'm a fan and I I grew up and learned to play by being a music fan, so I completely understand it from the other side of the of the gun, you mm. know. Well, I have to tell you, uh, we were speaking before off mic that I've been to see you. Five, six times over the, because you hold down the uh, pitch, don't you, over at Ronnie Scott's yeah. for the Christmas and yes. New Year's slot. And you've been there for, what, 14, 15 years now? 17 this 17 year. years. Wow. 17, though we don't do the New Year. We did the New Year for 15 years. Uh -huh. And um, it was getting tired. Yes. Not us necessarily, but the concept. They had it with Buddy Greco. They tried it with um, Booker T, Georgie Fame who insulted the audience because he That's got a good. Well, that always goes down the <laughs> he tree. He didn't feel well. Yeah. And he gave a, a very like, happy new year. I love Georgie. I mean, he's one of my favorites. He's incredible. But um, that specific night, he wasn't, uh -huh. he didn't feel like it. Uh -huh. So I think the new year was beginning to lose the plot a bit. And they said to me, look, would you mind if we, if we did something else? And I, I welcomed it. Because mm. I'll tell you why. We used to finish on a climax and to plow into Soho on a new year's Eve and do a, what I call a black tie event. I was not enjoying it anymore. Nor the guys. So this year we were, we were in Ostuni, Italy, playing on a freezing cold stage at half past twelve. <laughs> Two flights to get there, but we had a good time. Yes, it was lovely. You yeah. know, so because uh, you need a different experience as well to keep your motivation up, don't you? So, yeah. so yeah, the answer is we do still do the Christmas run. Yes, we, we had a very successful run this year, but the new year at, at the moment they've shelved that. I mean, it might come back again, and then mm. we'll we'll see. You know? And it, is the New Year's audience different? I mean, because it's black tie. I mean, I've been to, I've different. been to the Christmas one, but yeah. I would take my parents. It's their anniversary, yeah. uh, normally around about the twentieth of December. Yeah, and it's a nice, relaxed sort of festive sort of it's feel right. to the gig it's, it's right. really it's lovely. lovely i would imagine new year is probably starting to get a little bit pissed up corporate -y. they don't get you know what not the the drunk thing i didn't see that in recent years but it, it, it it's like a forced enjoyment it's flat really it's, it's not that ronnie's is flat it's that the new year i just find genuinely it's flat even in italy it was it was okay it's a night which to be honest with you i mean i said to the italian agent i didn't want to work I, I, I'm really not interested in working New Year's even unless it's local and it's a good payer. And they says, well, what would you need? So I told them and they came up with it. So I was backed into a corner. Yeah. I'd be very happy not to bother with it anymore on New Year's Eve. I've, I've done it a long time and I quite enjoy being with my family, to be yeah. honest. No, yeah. don't blame you. I mean, 
a lot of people, myself included, think New Year's Eve is a bit made and up. London, so you've got trying to force to... yourself to have a good... We tend to go away for a couple of nights, get away from it all. Trying to get into town was another one because they'd constantly closed. We talked about London with this yes. show as well. They're completely closing the roads off. It's like they were trying to discourage people from coming in. Mm. So uh, then I'd get the tube. I tried to get a cab back. I couldn't get a cab. And I thought, this is, this is so... Remember the last New Year's I played Ronnie's, I was standing near the BBC with not one soul around trying to get an Uber. <laughs> 17 minutes, 18 minutes, yeah. 20 minutes. And of course they doubled the price as well. So <laughs> depressing. Yeah. I thought, no, no, no. Yeah. Finish on a nice night. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got to say, we were talking about repeating the same song over and over. I made a note, my dad's favourite song, and it always brings a smile to his face when you play it, is Night Train. Does he which, like that yeah, one? He yeah, he absolutely loves it. It's one of my favourites as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sax solo in that. It's just certain something about the way the whole thing builds up and the crescendo it's, it's just a wonderful it's piece. a marvelous piece of rhythm and blues yeah it's that. fantastic but apparently duke ellington wrote that song and he called it happy go lucky local and i've played in a duke ellington re recreation band meant for run by a guy called pete long for many years and uh, they actually pulled that out it's the same same and uh, what happened was a saxophone player called jimmy forrest later on kind of ripped it off great uh -huh. sax player right and he claimed it as his own ah bizarre i, I because when I did some research into the song, saw Little Richard's doing his, his yeah. thing on it, which was a remarkable live performance as well. It came up as Jimmy, as you say, Jimmy, Jimmy Forrest, Forrest having written it, but you're saying yeah. it wasn't him. Well, Jimmy Forrest was a phenomenal player. He's one of my yeah. favourite sax players, amazing player. But uh, no, Ellington did it first, so right. I'm not sure what court battles went on at the time. <laughs> I won't argue with that then. But, but yeah. Forrest was credited as writing. I mean, maybe he changed a few things around to mm -hmm. get away with it. Yeah. But try to check out Happy Go Lucky Local by Duke Ellington and it's Bloody Night Train. I'll make a note. It's, it's not, I, I will. But yeah, I like that song. It's a great, great, great piece of rhythm and blues to play. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I love love all all the pieces you play. I think they're all, all, all wonderful. Yeah. Got to ask your upbringing. Sure. I mean, you're born and bred London. Whereabouts mm. in London were you born and brought up? I call it, I, well, it's not now, but I used to call it the arse end of Labrick Grove, Latimer okay. Road. Latimer Road, yeah, uh, okay. As my father remembers when he came over, because my father was stationed here, he was an American serviceman from New Jersey. Not, he wasn't in the war, but in, in the 50s. That's where he met my mum. And he used to say the Latimer Road was a no-go area. It was full of dubious characters. Right. Family gangs, uh -huh. you know, that sort of thing. But I had a great upbringing there. You know, it was quite a tough. We grew up in Oxford Gardens first in a basement flat. And then when they started to build the Westway, and those council flats, in fact, they're right opposite Grenfell Tower. I was going to say, it must be close. Yeah. Oh, it's Stone's Throw. I uh -huh. remember it being built, Grenfell Tower. Our doctors was on the first floor there. And um, so our estate was a Silchester estate. And when, <clears throat> when they built that up, uh, now let me see, 69, 70, well, I was eight, we moved there. Yeah. So we mm -hmm. went from being in a basement flat all crammed in together with me and my sister and my mum and dad mm -hmm. to this uh, council estate. And we were in a lovely residential street. Then we were thrown into this council estate with... Um, Rough kids, very rough kids, mm. but we all become mates. And I've become a rough kid because I had to, I had yes. no choice. Otherwise you couldn't get out the door, you know. What, what do you mean by rough? Getting up to mischief? Yeah, I mean, doing yeah just mischief and yeah. stone throwing and, uh -huh. and fights and stuff like that. Not, not. None of the sort of knifing and stuff. No. <laughs> Nothing I mean, serious sure you that, hear about today. I'm sure that went on, right? I'm mm. sure that the, in some villainous ways that went on and there was a guy shot a guy called harry roberts who's i think he was released from prison recently mm. maybe he died but villain was involved in a shooting around latimer road some coppers got shot mm. around there and so that went on but no 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 so you, weren't, you weren't in gangs or anything or i you, was oh, you were actually in a, yeah 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 it was in a kind of gang on the the council estate but then the, then my gang started later with the rockabilly and the teddy boy scene yeah that uh -huh. was that was a we can speak about that later but that was a gangs with um 
extremely violent times in the 70s and 80s. I'm mm. talking about rival things, but the level what's going on now, no, mm. nowhere near it. Yeah. People will say I'm looking at it through rose-tinted glasses, but I'm not. I got a bloody good memory and I'm not. The gang, on the estate, it wasn't really a gang. It was just a bunch of kids. 90% West Indian kids, Jamaican origin. Mm -hmm. Wonderful kids. I don't remember any racism growing up, considering that Notting Hill was the area of the race rights, which mm. was before that you know i just remember a bunch of us getting on there was moroccan kids there was mostly west indian kids i was probably the in the minority as a as a, as a white kid half jewish half italian <laughs> but nobody bothered so right me. melting pot nobody no. cared no. and we, we we got on and we um something we didn't think about we didn't speak about hmm. wasn't on our minds we were just kids on our bikes throwing stones at each other and it was they were building the west way you see and they just built it so there was a whole load of rubble under that west way and there was also a disused army barracks, uh, like a territorial army yes. barracks, which was amazing because in those days you could go in there. There was no health and safety, no uh, barriers, no no entry. So we'd smash that up. It was smashed up anyway. Right. No, it was, yeah, yeah. It was four. It's like that film. I can't remember what it was called. Um, the film in the war where they all got the, the little kids in the Blitz go into the derelict buildings and start smashing it up. I can't remember the name of it. I'll think of it in a minute. What well, lo lovely film, but that's what we were like. So we'd go into this army bat, and I remember you'd go off an iron staircase and you'd walk up to this top floor and the half the floor was missing. So you just see the 30, 40 foot drop below. You could have easily have fallen through the floor. Sure. Just, just, so when I say about gangs, in those, that council state days, our big thing was climbing. We'd climb on the roof of the school. And, uh, and we'd climb all over the place because it was all being built around that area. So it was a incredible thing as a kid, but highly dangerous. I'm amazed I'm still here. With all that climbing <laughs> oh, I am we as well, to do. judging by those stories. So your parents were fairly liberal, were they, in terms of letting you go out and run around with the kids? Yeah. And they, presumably yeah. they didn't know some of the stuff you got up to, like most no, most kids don't let on. But No, well, we weren't really getting, you know, we were just getting up to things on our bikes. You yeah, know, it's not criminal activity. No, we were on the Raleigh it's, choppers, you yeah, know, the choppers. Yeah, yeah. So we all had I the do. choppers with a kid on the back of my yeah. bike all the time, or I was on the back of someone else's. And we'd, we'd cycle as far up to the Serpentine and we'd go swim in there. So we had an amazing childhood, really. But I never, I remember there was an older gang of guys mostly Irish descent guys. They were called the Tinker Murphy gang. And they used to get in, in trouble, uh -huh. you know, uh, and beat people up. And I remember one of those guys was actually knifed by somebody. What they tried to do, these guys got off, tried to buy some stuff off a food stall in Labrick Grove and the guy wouldn't serve them or something. And they started shaking the stall. The fight broke out and one of them was stabbed. Mm. So that was my early recollection of that level of violence. Yeah. But luckily they were, those guys were three or four years older than us, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a kind of good upbringing in a way. You know, we'd play football, mostly played football, and we'd, we'd just be kids. So were any of your early sort of musical impressions formed in that time, or was that later yeah, on? No, I think they probably were, because I remember I remember the late the late 60s with the skinheads, uh, and then I remember the rude boys, mm -hmm. the, 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 the black guys that used to wear the two-tone suits and yeah, hats. Yeah. And there was a few of those guys around at that time. So they'd be playing blue beat music. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Dexys, you know, early yeah, yeah, night runs. Yeah. They were the, the original. Formed on the back of that. Yeah. And I remember going to the fairground and hearing, um, they'd always play stuff like Real Prince Buster and stuff like mm -hmm. that, which I liked. Have some terribly rude lyrics. I mean, filthy, lay down, girl, let me push it. I mean, really awful yeah. lyrics. And my, me and my sister would be <laughs> You should take up that. rapping. I don't, I don't, yeah, <laughs> you know, reggae. So I, 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 I like that. But really, the early influences, and it probably says this on the stuff, came from the dad, my dad's record collection and mm. his. His love of music, you know, he ne never, he didn't really know or like jazz, but he, he didn't dislike jazz, but he, he, he loved all the rock and roll stuff. He loved Sammy Davis. 
Remember when I grew up, there was an album called The Wham of Sam, which I'd put on the mono dance set, which is all yeah. we had. Just done one little mono player. Wham of Sam, I used to enjoy. But I enjoyed uh, the Fats Domino and Bill Haley stuff a lot. Mm -hmm. And then my dad said to me once, I was quite fairly young, he says, do you want to go see Bill Haley? I says, yeah, because I grew up looking at this guy with this chubby, funny-looking guy with a kiss curl and a great driving band. This is in the 70s, you know. Yeah. And I went, and uh, oh, it was amazing, just watching the guitar player and the saxophone player, and I think that was probably my earliest. Where was he playing? He was playing, uh, I went to see him at the Gorman State when I was very young, and then I saw him at the New Victoria in 1976, which was great as well. Very good, yeah. And the funny thing was, it was many years after his hits, but he still looked the same. Well, yeah. at least from a distance. Chubby with a kiss curl, with a tux. <laughs> it was like a museum piece. Yes. But it was great, very exciting. And uh, it was uh, that was probably my earliest thing. And when I bought the saxophone when I was about 17, 18, I learned to play initially by playing along to those records. I just put them on and just tried to play. I didn't know if I had any talent or not. It wasn't something I really thought so about. So was this something you chose to do yourself? You were positively encouraged by your parents or was it someone at school? No, I wasn't encouraged by my parents and I wasn't encouraged at school. Uh, I hated music lessons at school because it was boring. And I showed no talent or no ability whatsoever. Um, I went to St. Clement Danes. The, uh, it was a grammar school. Uh -huh in Wood Lane, but uh, looking back, the school was just the right, wrong fit for me. It was beyond me academically, without a shadow of a doubt, because it was a different level, a different, how can I put it? It was grooming people for different things. Right. You know? Is grooming the right word now? Well, prob probably not, <laughs> but I think we know where you're coming from. Well, there was yeah. that going on as well, <laughs> yeah. but we, we, we can go. We, uh, there was that going on as well. There were some very dubious teachers. Looking, when you're a child, you don't realize it, but looking back now, there were some horrendous, couple of horrendous teachers when you look back at, at what, what they actually did with the kids. Yes, but you probably and didn't think never too much of it at the time. It's looking back at these things. No, you'd laugh, you'd laugh yeah. nervously yeah. and think it was funny, but they were um, they were undoubtedly some, some dubious people. But that was part of the course back then. Uh -huh. But the, the, the school, no, no music at the school. But when I was around 16, 15, I started to get involved in that kind of, what we call that sort of teddy boy revival. I don't know why. Because at the time, you know, you had this uh, Happy Days TV thing starting. Do you remember that? With the, with Fonz, the Fonz, yeah. Right? Henry Winkler. And there seemed to be some big rock and roll revival going on. It was all going on in America. So you had a resurgence of Chuck Berry. I remember he had that My ding ling and then yeah, Reeling yeah. and Rocking, which I loved that song. And um, so anyway, I got involved in the clothes, that Teddy Boy kind of clothes and the drapes and all this sort of thing and the really long, greasy hair. And I really got to see bands on that scene. So I started to to sneak my way and get snuck into clubs at, at 15, places like the George in Hammersmith and place in Barnet. I'd start traveling all over London to my parents. They were scared what I was getting up to, but we were just really going for the music, having a few drinks at that age and, uh, and seeing and, and every one of these venues or most of these venues had a live band, you see. So I used to see the saxophone players and thought, yeah, I like some of that. I like this curly kind of brass thing with all the, all the buttons and keys on it. Cause it's always thought of as the, I don't know, the sexy instrument to play, isn't it? You yeah. can be at the front, you're playing yeah. your solos, and it's got this wonderful, wonderful melodic sound well, to it. Well, that's right, and I love that rock, I love that sort of rock and roll style of, of, of playing. And, and, and then I heard some of these, some of these clubs, instead of playing the conventional rock and roll stuff that we were talking about, stuff everybody knows, like Jerry Lee, Bill yeah. Haley, Gene Vincent. I loved all those people. Some of these DJs were adventurous, so they'd start playing Louis Prima mm -hmm. and Louis Jordan. And the real, what I call the real proper black yes. R&B, yes. Big Joe Turner, early James Brown. And, and we were thinking, God, this is so refreshing. This is unbelievable. Louis Jordan, when I first heard him, I thought, 
what is this? This is like rock and roll, but it ain't. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's a different thing. So I used to go to the record and tape exchange, which used to have all the vinyl, and just buy a bunch of stuff. I'd buy Louis Jordan. I'd buy uh, um, the Joe Turner stuff, Wynonie Harris, all these kind of early R&B guys who came out the big bands, of course, you know. And I was hooked on that stuff. And when I listened to the saxophone playing on that stuff, it was far more jazzy than some of the rock and rolls. These were jazz guys doing these sessions. And um, I kind of got hooked on it that way. So you, you, you were self-taught to a large degree? or did you? Because I think you had some formal education. In, oh, m- very in, much. Yeah. Uh, well, I was self-taught at first. And then I started to learn from my dad's records. And I had some cheap saxophone. And I didn't know about mouthpiece or reeds. And I had a couple of formal lessons. And I didn't like them. It was very stuffy. Very stuffy. And I didn't like that very much. So I started to play. And uh, within six months, I was gigging with a band, Rebound. And what what we did was we did a couple of, of, uh, they liked Tommy, they liked all this British rock and roll. So Uh I learned to play some Tommy Steele (laughs) saxophones off the top, Rock Uh With The Caveman. Well, I later found out that solo that was on Rock With The Caveman was Ronnie Scott doing a session. Okay. I learned that solo note for note. So I couldn't improvise, but I had a, always had quite a good ear. So I learned note for note. And used to play the solo. So you couldn't read music? No. No. No, no, no. I didn't know about chords or music. And then, then um, from, I think from all that, I, I started to think, what, what, then I started to meet other musicians and fellow musicians on the scene and uh, met a couple of other very nice sax player called John Wallace, a friend of mine. And he said, have you ever heard Stan Getz? I said, no. So we went down the record tape exchange and bought Stan Getz. Mm. Then I discovered Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster. And when I'm talking about the great saxophone players, Charlie Parker, Lester Young, Dexter Gordon, and I started to read about them. And I always will love the rock and roll and love it. But this was the real stuff for me. That early swing and Louis Jordan, Mm. Prima, Louis Prima sax player, Sam Butera, who was marvelous. So all these names, you know, I started to study them and um, learn their stuff. And I thought, why can't I? I can't understand what they're doing. I can hear, I can learn it, but I don't know what it is. Someone says to me, well, they're playing on chord structures. That's what it is. Do you know the chord structures? No. So then I signed up for night school at the, uh, at the City Lit in, uh, in uh, Holborn and studied with a guy called Eddie Harvey, who used to play with Humphrey Littleton. He was a piano player and trombone player. And he also played with Woody Herman when he came over. And he was brilliant. He straightened me out and said, look, he said, you've got a very natural ability. You've got great sound. You got all, it's all there. You just need a little bit of the, the mm. polish on it. So I went to the night school every week. And then I went to a Saturday night school at the city, lit, uh, sorry, daytime course for learning to read big band stuff. But I've never been a good music reader. It's something that I'm absolutely dreadful. I mean, I read, but mm. I'm a, t- compared to guys in my band, I'm a sh- shit reader. <laughs> something I've never found easy. Uh-huh. But I learned about the harmony and learned about the structure of music and how it worked. And then I started to listen to stuff I liked with fresh ears and understanding how the, the, uh, the skeleton of the music, building the foundation, you've got to, it's so important to do that. So what do you think it was? Was it, was it the whole demeanor of the, the live act? Was it, the, as you say, the chord structure? Was it the, all of the it. clothes they wore, yeah, yeah, the fashion, all of, it. All, of it. all of it? The clothes, I love that. I love the vibes. I love the way they sang. I used to listen to, um, I wasn't listening to Sinatra and people like that back then, but I was listening to the, the rock and roll and then the rhythm and blues and then the jazz stuff. So I, uh, from, so from somebody like Louis Prima, I went back to listen to the people he liked, like Louis Armstrong and people like that. And I love that way of singing. I've always loved that rougher way of singing, like him or Billie Holiday. The, the real singers, I've never really been that into, to be honest. I've liked the musicians who sing. Yes. You know? And I think it, I think it's a, as you said, it was a combination of all of it, the music. But 
some purpose in life as well. Because I'd never started anything in my life. Mm. The only thing I was ever good at was art. I was a very good cartoonist. And I wanted to possibly do that when I left school. But when I left school, I was a painter and decorator for Kensington Council, which was a lousy job. Apprentice. Absolutely lousy. The only good thing about that was we got off early. Three o'clock, we'd all clock off and we'd go home. Uh -huh. And I'd be getting, getting back from nightclubs at one, two in the morning and still going into work, you know. Yeah. So once I finished my apprenticeship and, uh, and uh, was starting to play and starting to play with a few bands, the day I finished my apprenticeship, I was out of there. My mother went mad. Says you're a layabout. You can't do this music. Nothing's going to happen. Blah, 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 blah. So what did they think you were going to be or do? What were their expectations of you? Well, at first it was art. You know, going into a, a, a as a junior in an art studio because they had art studios then. It's different, like you know. And mm. I, I wanted to do that, and for some reason I didn't. I well, basically I wanted to earn money because I wanted to go out. So to do something that I wouldn't earn money, at least with an apprenticeship, I earned some money. Then I was doing the apprenticeship, some gigs on the side, so I was earning some money like that. Plus, when I first started that way, I was sitting in with a lot of bands. So a lot of clubs uh, like the Dublin Castle in Camden Town, uh, Hope and Anchor in Islington, Bull and Gate in Kentish Town, Hare and Hounds in Islington. So I drive, I got a car or I take the tube and I'd sit in with bands. So I'd sit in with New Orleans bands, reggae bands, jazz, anything. I'd be humiliated sometimes because I couldn't really play well enough. And other times I could. Uh, a guy called Diz Watson. He was in a band called, he had a band called Diz and the Doormen, and they were doing like Professor Longhair New Orleans music mm -hmm. really well. They kind of took me under their wing. And every time I, I, I came back, I, I was better. Because if I, if I mess something up, I'd go home and learn it, then come back and get it right. So you've had a combination of your own desire to succeed at this, yeah. but also people along the way have put their arm around you and, enc much. and encouraged you as well. Very Mentors. Much. Some of the great, some really good sax players. Yeah, this guy John Wallace helped me out, a guy called Pete Thomas. Um, helped me out a lot who played with Joe Jackson helped Pete helped me a lot uh, a guy called Dave Bitelli helped me uh, who's still around Dave really did a lot but a, a lot Diz yeah oh yeah I, I had very little discouragement but a lot of encouragement with people and I was the worst player on the bandstand and then I, I started to level that out a little bit by practicing you know getting the sax about practicing singing didn't come till later I had no aspirations or anything to when did you realise you well thought you could sing and hold a note and hold, hold a song in front of an audience well, what happened was I, I, I basically got in a, a, um, a rock and roll band called, called Dynamite, which were doing this Bill Haley stuff, but they were also doing a bit of the rhythm and blues like Louis Jordan that I liked. Yeah. They had been around since the 60s, but they reinvented themselves with a couple of young players like me and somebody else. When I first joined that band, I couldn't really play. But as I said, I got better. And on the side, I was doing the day job and the sitting in which was the old way of learning. This is how the guys we're talking about learn. They, they didn't learn at music college. They learned on the job. They learned by sounding bad. You've got to sound bad before you can sound good. And, and then you hone your talent. But I was in this band called the Dynamite Band that were traveling all up and down the country. And I was getting better practicing. And there was a guy on sax called Mike Shelley. Uh, he was a, a black guy from Chicago who was over here for a while. And he helped me a lot as well. He was one of the guys that says, look, you've got some ability there. He says, um, you know, I know you're, you haven't been playing long, but I'm studying at Morley College. Why don't you? And so he encouraged me to kind of study as well. But the singing, no, I was, I was, uh, I was thrown forward at the singing by, by accident because I did this dynamite band for a while. And then we, um, I got involved with a thing called the Chevalier Brothers. Are you aware of that? I am. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that's a whole new story about the, so th th that will go, that will lead to the singing really, you know. I was with this, the, the dynamite thing, and we were doing quite a lot of gigs, quite a lot of rock and roll festivals, working men's clubs, plowing up and down the country. 
I had to quit the job because uh, after uh, uh, I was getting back at three or four and trying to get into work. Uh, but once once I did the apprentice, I wanted to I said, I'll do my city and gills. I'll finish it. I'll get out and try to see what happens with this music thing. I had no aspiration of being a musician before that at all. So it's something I fell into totally by just playing sax. I guess even in those days, I had some spark that people liked. I'm not being arrogant about mm. that, but I must have had because they hired me. And I had some little spark in my playing or something that people enjoyed. So I started to improve. I was walking in Camden Town one day in the market. I can't remember why. And I had my saxophone. I heard this guitar player playing like uh, jazz, you know, the old style, like Charlie Christian or Django Rhino with a bass player. And they looked good. The guitar player was a French guy. He had the vintage clothes and little round glasses. And the bass player had this leopard skin bass. And they sounded great. And I said, can I? And they had another sax player. I remember. And I asked if I could sit in and they said, yeah. And I sat in. Then I came back the week after, then the week after. And they fired the other sax player, which I felt terrible about. Absolutely terrible. They says, we want you. I says, yeah, but he's a better player than me. He's a schooled player. Can no, 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 no. And from that, then on, we started a band, the Chevalier Brothers, which was incredible. And we, uh, we, we entered a talent show at the Camden Palace. Do you remember that Camden? It used to be called. I don't the, recall. It's a it's Mornington Crescent, a huge dance hall called the uh -huh. Camden Palace. It used to be called the Music Machine. Then it became the Camden Palace. They had bands. I know where it is. I don't remember the talent yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did this. We entered this talent show. Uh, we 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 started playing and we had a couple of gigs and whatever. And I thought, oh, this is better than the rock and roll band because it was more challenging. And we started to play some Benny Goodman stuff, mm. some um, some Lionel Hampton. A lot of Louis Jordan, some Slim Gaylord, all these weird names that I was hearing and learning about. And um, no singing, purely, purely instrumentals. And sort of faked and busted in a way. And then uh, the Camden Palace, we did this talent show and they says, we want to need a vocal. And the guitar player, French guy, he says, you have to sing. And I says, I can't sing. What are you talking about? He says, I hear you singing in the car. And you, okay, you do it. So I, that's okay. So I sang the Jump, Jive and Whale. Uh -huh. Baby, baby, it looks like it's going to hell. And we won the talent contest. Fantastic. We won a bottle of champagne and a residency at the Embassy Club, which was a club in Mayfair. Amazing. Don't, don't know if it's still there. Like, like months residency or whatever it uh -huh. was. And from then, the press started to take notice. We were working a busking pitch in Camden Town and a busking pitch in Covent Garden. And we became so popular as the Chevalier Brothers. In fact, Julian Clary was on the bill. He would, he would play on the street, Julian Clary, honestly. So Julian Clary would do his little act on the street. We'd do ours. A guy called John Hegley, who's on the comedy circuit now. So it was a pro thing. Even though we were playing on the street, it was a professional and vibe. a brilliant way to hone your, your skills live. Because we play hours. Yeah. Hours. Now, I wasn't singing then. But what we, what we found was we, um, we were earning in those days, I remember on the, so we were earning 40 quid in Camden and then 40 quid each, each in Covent Garden. So you're talking in one day, 80 quid. I've never seen that sort of money in my life. 80 quid cash. So we did this embassy club and from then on, we added more vocals in the book because we realized you couldn't just do the instrumentals. So I says, okay, I'll try to sing some Louis Jordan. Well, what do you want to sing? Let's try Caldonia. That ain't nobody here but us chickens. I sang a couple of, you see, the thing is those songs were quite easy to sing because they weren't any range to them really. It's not like that. So uh, I got better at that as well. And you they're know. all fun songs as well, aren't they? They're all yeah. ones that people can join in with. Yeah, like. um, Saturday Night Fish Fry. I used to sing that one. And we, so we ended up doing half the vocal and half the instrumentals with the band. And the band got interviewed by the New Musical Express, the Melody Maker, all these things. We had articles and we played the ICA down um, near Buckingham Palace. And it, it really snowballed. And we started ending up making a, a very, very, very good living out of that Chevalier mm. Brothers band. 
So that's, Amazing a, that's a brilliant education on the street, as yeah. it were, learning as you go along and trying things out, seeing what works and doesn't work, and then being picked up. Yeah. I'd right. meet other sax players as well and other musicians. And, and I was also studying privately. I still did the City Lit, but I was studying privately with a guy called Pat Crumley, who, when Ronnie Scott died, he took over Ronnie's band on his place. And he was a marvellous player, like a studio player. And uh, again, he helped me out a lot. What, what do you mean by a, a studio player? What's the difference between a studio and a Well, the, and a in live? those days, there was a lot of sessions. So uh -huh. they do sessions for TV, right. sessions for other artists. Uh -huh. They were sort of what I call, in a good way, jack of all trades. They could, they could okay. adapt to any style. Sure. And they weren't necessarily stylists, although Pat was in his own way, but they, could, they were very versatile mm. musicians. They could read anything, they double. So those kind of guys were double on clarinets, flutes. Okay. Like Pat, you know, yeah. and he was great. He again recognized some kind of natural talent. He says, no, no, you've got good sound. And he, he says, buy the Jimmy Dorsey tutor book. So I bought the Jimmy Dorsey tutor book and we went through that. And uh, he says, learn all the major scales. We learned those. He goes, oh, you've done those quick. He goes, now the minors. Within a week, I'd learn all the minors. Now you learn the harmonic minor. And I, he says, oh, he goes, you're a quick student. Because he saw I was determined to do it, you know. Because yeah. I started quite late. Because a lot of people I know really started music when they were 14 15 at school well, i didn't exactly see. a lot of kids pick it up you know because they're forced to through music lessons at school i didn't yeah. i didn't so i had to cob cobble together the, the education mm. as i went but i'm so glad i did because it gave my playing and the, the act I, the, the, gave it personality and you see i was learning by that time as well see that time in london was what the uk was vibrant for live music you you could work i think we were working six nights a week Six nights a week. I can't remember what we were earning, but it was good money. Mm. We all got done by the tax in the end because we didn't understand what it meant. We really didn't. You so, didn't put enough aside, did no, you? No, exactly. Didn't. So we yeah. all started getting these assessments. And yeah. we kind of shat ourselves. <laughs> oh, my God. So we had to, <laughs> once you, you get hit by them, you learn you've got to take care of it. You know. So, so was all, that what brought Chevalier Brothers uh, to, to an end, or was it? Oh, later. Later on. Yeah. I'll, I'll because you, you toured quite widely, didn't you, with yeah. Chevalier Brothers? we can go into that. But, yeah. so, but first of all, we were doing all the London gigs, mm. and we were playing to a, we were young, we were in our 20s, the crowd was young, it was a hip crowd, but I was learning, although I didn't know I was learning that, that how to work with an audience, how to work with a good audience, a bad audience, an indifferent audience, uh, playing 10 people or 20 people or 100 people. But we were packing venues, we played the Dublin Castle, the Half Moon in Putney, 100 Club. We used to do the 100 Club a lot. We'd back, we'd go on the bill with visiting Americans like Jimmy Witherspoon or Slim Gaylord and people wow. like that. You know, we'd open up, which was great. So the London, the live scene back then and pub gigs, when they didn't have the stigma. You say now, well, band's a pub band. It was a compliment back then because the band, you know, people like Morrissey Mullen and um, Shack Attack who played the pubs, they had hits. And, uh, it was a great, great things. So how has that changed today, the, the venues? I mean, there's far fewer venues. They ain't there. They're just not there anymore. <laughs> no, I had um, Phil yeah. Ryan, um, musician Phil Ryan on, yeah. on the podcast, uh, one of the early ones, actually. And he was bemoaning the lack of chances and opportunities yeah. that there are, particularly in London, exactly. for young, up-and-coming. young people. For, yeah, they want to yeah. perform live. That's the problem. Uh, you know, it wasn't a picnic back then. Mm. And there was a lot of people that didn't make it because... Of, of, of either lack of motivation, because you've got to have the motivation to push it, but you've got to have the talent. Not everyone can do this. Mm. I can't get in a boxing ring or do the high jump or be an accountant. Well, maybe I could, but you, I believe you've got to have an ability to yeah. do something. And with music, you have to have that natural ability. You have to. And then you hone that with study. I've seen people with very little natural ability that become decent players through study, but there's not there's something missing. Something missing. And I like people who I feel have that little spark in them. 
people like Claire Martin have that spark and people that, I've, you know, that you, you hear really. But, sorry, I've lost my thread. But, the oh, yeah, the scene, the London live scene or the UK live mm. scene, yeah. We started to do, so from that, we started to get booked on the university circuit, which was around back then as well. So you'd have these incredible balls at Cambridge and Oxford and Birmingham and wherever it was. And they'd have, I remember Ian Jury on the bill. He, he started, then we went on. And the Pogues, Kirsty McCall, Humphrey Littleton. Wow. Then you'd have a jazz tent. With I wish the, I'd have been there at that gig. Amazing. You'd have uh, Acker Bilk they'd bring in. So yeah. the, the how can I, young people's minds were so much more open. Mm. It's not their fault now. They're, they're fed one form of music. What's, what's popular? Well, I was going to ask you about so your diverse. views on you know these shows that I can't even remember what they're called now. The talent shows. The talent yeah, shows, yeah. yeah. Uh, because you said you've got to have a natural ability, hone yeah. hard work and putting it yeah. out there. Are these that want to be ready-made stars overnight? With well, I think, not a lot of ability. I think my answer to that would be how many of them that go on these shows actually make a, a career that has longevity? There's so few. Yeah. So few. Even Alec, even uh, Leona Lewis or whatever. What, now, no one even talks about them. Mm. That's sad because the hopes are built up. And uh, part of it's because the scene isn't there. Part of it's you've got to earn fame. I don't believe you can win fame mm. in a talent contest. Some but, have. Yeah, because they're going for fame rather than trying to hone their craft, which is the difference. Well, the thing is, is, it's one thing to be able to do all the vocal pyrotechnics and the vocal gymnastics, all the screaming, what I call watered-down Aretha Franklin style yeah. of singing, which has a place for it, but it's very watered-down Aretha Franklin, you know, kind of, that's the what the role model is. The wailing and, and really screaming, you know, like Whitney Houston or whatever. But, but these Houston and uh, Franklin were completely gifted artists. But the problem is there's one thing to be able to do that for one or two numbers. There's another thing to be able to hold an audience's attention for two hours set yes. to build a repertoire, to build that. And that's where I find the talent contests don't show you. It's a party piece. Whole and is that where you get your, your most joy live on stage in front of an audience? Yeah, I do. But I always say that if... If Louis Prima or Sinatra or one of these people could be cloned and brought back to life, some kind of clone, right, and entered a talent contest, they'd be criticised completely. They'd say to Louis Prima, you, you can't sing, because mm. he used to sing in that, yeah, I'm just a jiggle yeah. So he'd be told he couldn't sing. Sinatra would be told he belonged on a cruise ship. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they I wouldn't mean, get it. Well, Louis Armstrong, I mean, yeah. you couldn't say he had a, a, a crooning voice. I mean, no, but it's utterly unique. But it's marvellous. Yeah. But you, uniqueness is not what they're looking for. They're looking for this one-size-fits-all. Yeah. I don't know. But there again, when we were kids, we had Opportunity Knocks, which was a pile of old crap as well. You know, new faces. And yes. So I suppose it hasn't changed so much. But uh -huh. apart from the fact was that when I started, I guess I was on the tail end, the tail end of that training ground. What I call that live training ground, where you could build a name, you could build an audience, and you could learn your craft. And that's what you mentioned earlier that your musician friend who was on the podcast said. It's so difficult to build a craft now. So difficult. I mean, take the jazz scene. I love the jazz scene. I love playing jazz music, even though I don't make my living playing straight jazz music. The problem with that is that a guy comes out of college, they've practiced for 10 hours in their bedroom, they're great players, but then they become band leaders straight away. Mm. People used to learn to be sidemen, learn to respect people, you learn it, but you become a band leader straight away, expecting people to love all your original out there compositions. Well, no, they're not going to really, it doesn't work that way. Was it a big transition for you from being a member of a band to becoming a band lead and, and being the front man? Oh, it was awful. It was awful. It was a necessity because what, what happened was the, the Chevalier brothers, as you mentioned earlier, toured extensively. Five-week tours of Europe we were doing. We had a deal with WEA. 
I stopped liking it when we stopped playing in London mm. and we started to do the grueling traveling because I just didn't like it. I still don't like it, but I do traveling because I have to do it to take the music. Once I'm there, I'm okay. But it's, I think you, you've got two types of people, some people that enjoy traveling and others don't. Mm. I, I don't. Yeah. I think some people think it's glamorous, but once you've hung around a, a, an airport waiting yeah. lounge for, yeah. you know, for more than a couple of times a week. So we did these tours. Basically, I, I don't want to go into it now, but we, um, we did Japan. And after Japan, it was big in Japan because we had a deal. So we actually went to Tokyo. So jump, jive and swing is big in Japan, is it? It was. It was it? I think it still is. I can't, yeah, it was. They, I think that whole 80s thing crossed over to uh -huh. Japan and places. So, yeah, I mean, we played everywhere. Played all the festivals like Roskilde in Denmark and went well. And it, and it was doing well. But then we realized it was kind of uh, the acid house thing was coming in. The house music, the hip hop mm. kind of thing. And people going more towards that than live music. Venues were shutting. Venues were closing down. I could see this happening. And that all had an impact with the Chevalier brothers. So I, but I think I stopped enjoying it when we really started touring. And when we, I liked it when it was fun and when we were making a reasonable living and that was it. Mm. When it became a real business and we had management and big agencies, I didn't like it. And um, basically what happened was um, the manager at the time we had, I'm not going to mention any, any names, and it wasn't, Look, retrospectively, it's probably not his fault. It was our fault as well. When we decided to call it a day or start to call it a day, it was the late 80s. We were, we owed about 10 grand VAT each because he basically hadn't paid the VAT man. He had used it to yeah. do other stuff. Yeah. He hadn't put in his pocket. He had used it, it with the gamble. We basically had to, um, we had to record an album for Warner, Warner's Publishing of all original music, which I wrote most of it. And I wrote most of the songs in about 10 minutes, but actually quite good. Some of them are good. And it, we, we, um, we put this album out and we got an advance, paid some of that off. And we worked for about two, about a year to pay the VAT off with the band where we kind of hated each other. We don't hate each other now, yeah. but we didn't like each other. I didn't want to be there anymore. I was the one that pulled the plug. We'd fired the guitar player, Morris, who was a musical genius, but a, um, at that time, a little unstable. Mm -hmm. So he was messing things up. So it become, it was a cooperative how can I put it? So everyone had different opinions in the end. And I, I wanted to get a bigger band together and lead my own thing. And um, this guy called Pete Thomas, who I mentioned earlier, a great sax player, and he was with Joe Jackson. He had a lot of arrangements he'd done for Joe Jackson. And he says, look, do you want to use these arrangements and we'll start something else? And I, I did. So I told the guys, this is, I want to get out of this. I really need to get out of it very as soon as we can. So we um, think we paid the vat off and done. We were done. I don't even remember the last gig. Don't remember it. So, but, because you were performing not for the pleasure of it, but for specific financial yeah, purposes yeah, to yeah, that was move awful. on with your life. That was awful. I really didn't like that. But what, what saved me was I was doing some jazz gigs on the side, still trying to improve it. And then I got, I basically, 1988, with this guy, Pete Thomas, who didn't play in the band, he was doing the arranging. We recruited some guys and we got a, uh, the prototype of what you see now, mm. what you've been to see. It's called Ray Gelato Giants of Jive. Mm -hmm. Different repertoire, more what I would call 40s big band, but scaled down. And it took me a good few years to get the band's identity. But it started to build, but I built that band up on the tail end of the live scene dying. So it was harder than when we started the Chevalier Brothers, but we did it. You know, we, we, we had a, a lot of success with that. We played at Nice, Nice Jazz Festival opposite Lionel Hampton and d people I mentioned like Dizzy Gillespie were a bunch of young kids. Mm, fantastic. Marvelous. Yeah. And uh, that band was the prototype of what I have now. What I have now was born in about 19, 
1995. Although I'm calling this year our I should 25th. be checking the notes on your website. Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> yeah. But I'm calling this year our 25th anniversary, but it's been longer. So the, the 25th anniversary of the, the, the Giants. Giants, the, the yeah. Radio Lato Giants. Around, but the Giants of Jive, was a, I look at that as a different band. That was almost like the intermediate band. Uh-huh. But we, we toured and we travelled, but we could see the live scene. We could see it shrinking. We could really see it shrinking. And plus, I had a bigger band to pay. And uh, to answer your next question, I was the band leader. I was the guy in the Chevalier Brothers that wanted no responsibility, that just wanted to play. Then I had all the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Had to register for the tack, the VAT, and boom, boom. I had to take care. Hire and fire, which I had to do. First guy I ever had to fire was terrible. Well, it still is. You know, I've, luckily, I've not do it for a while. But when you've, when you've got to lose a musician for various reasons, it's, it's, it's very hard. And I, I guess I had to toughen up. Because you're like a family, aren't you? Busy performing live, you know, most nights of the week. Yeah. And to get rid of somebody, it's not a nice experience. It must be heartbreaking. It is. And the, the first trumpet player I had to get rid of, I did it because he, he was just losing his chops, you know, right. was, uh, for reasons I don't really want to go No, no, into, that's, he, that's he, fair he enough. Personal things. Yeah, yeah. Was most lovely guy, and that was awful. And that happened. But we, had a, we did have a lovely band. And then around, around 95, I sort of disbanded that band, or it morphed into something else. I think, unfortunately, I had a misunderstanding with 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 Pete and we didn't really get on in the end so I didn't use those arrangements and um, we got another guy to do the arrangements and we wanted to change the flavor and around that time we could feel a little stirring going on in America with the swing revival so we started to do a little more of that prima style stuff which I liked a little more of my originals we were putting in quite quite a lot more of my stuff We've always had about a quarter original stuff, though I don't play them on every single gig. And we started to just morph into something a little bit different, a little more varied, you know, a whole different, with still with the rhythm and blues, but with a little bit of the Dean Martin, a little bit of the jazz. And we, it's always been my philosophy to vary it. And I think 95, 96 was the birth of really what we do now, you know. So how, because you're including yourself, you're what, seven piece band? Yeah. You're seven, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. So how long have you guys, because I think, I think you've been pretty much the same group for... Long time well, now. Well, we had the lineup in 95, and then we got on a guy called Rico Tommaso on trumpet, and we started recording albums. So our first album was called The Full Flavor. Then we did one called The Men From Uncle. The reason they said that, because the guys always called me uncle for some reason, because I had a couple <laughs> of younger guys in the band that would call me uncle, you know. Say, so, oh, you know, raise the uncle, you know. So we called, and then we had a guy called Rico Tommaso. We had Steve Rushton on the drums, a very, really, really good band. And then gradually, guys leave understandably they do 10 years they want to leave most guys stayed for years and then they want to do something else so they get mm. another offer or i feel they're getting tired musically uh, and i'll say look i need a change now for this time that it was a 50 50 thing some were encouraged you know right, that's what i mean uh, and the lineup we've had now you know some of those guys have been there years you're right danny danny master has been there for 20 years now nearly 20 years andy close on the same trombone Ollie, the saxophone player, Ollie will be 10. Gunter, 15, the piano player. Yeah. Ed, Ed's been doing it on and off three or four, the young drummer. Yeah. But we have, we have a couple of drummers because Ed is so busy, rightfully so, that he's doing all manner of work. So he can't make everything. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, uh, Danny's the same. He can't always make all the gigs. So I'm very flexible like that because I, I only want them there if they want to be there. And I know that they want to be there. And if they can't be there because it's something else they're doing, like a tour, I give them the liberty to do that. And I, so I've got some nice, B, um, what we call great subs come in, B-team guys. It doesn't mean they're B-players. It's just they're, part, they're not the, the, yeah. the, the, the first lineup. Sure. The bass player Manuel's been about six or seven years as well. Uh, I think I've covered everybody. So we're like a real family now. And, uh, and, I, the, the, and, and that comes across. You can see the rapport across. between all of you on, on the Believe stage. Believe me, though, there were sad times in the band where, where – um, 
after that lovely lineup that we had, I'm talking about mid to late 90s, where we started to do America, we did Canada. This was all on the back of this American swing revival, the swing dancing. And we were doing, and we did Umbria jazz many times. And we had this fantastic line, Alex Garnett on saxophone that works over at Ronnie's. Top musicians, Richard Bushkevich on piano, great music. Uh, that, that, after some of those guys left, then I hired guys that let's say weren't right. So we had a couple of guys that were right, like Danny, and then we had other guys that weren't right. They weren't bad players, if they were great players, but either they had the wrong attitude, they were unreliable, or just not the right thing. So we probably had uh, up until not that long, maybe, maybe five or six years ago, I never felt the band was working on all cylinders. And then I think last four or five years, whatever it is, I think we've started to get it back again on those cylinders. Well, in which case, I'm fortunate to have seen yeah, you the last four yeah. or five years. Yeah, then. and you could testify that Yeah, it's well, been amazing, it amazing gigs. And yeah. I think it's, it's all down to just getting the right combination. Yes. I mean, we like each other's company. We all hang out. Ed's only 26 or 27 on the drums, and he, he, he likes to be with us a bunch of old dudes. You know? There's so many moving parts to what you do. Yeah. And when you go on stage, you're bringing yourself, your personality yeah. and everything, and you all got to mix, mix together. Yeah. How does it work when you get on stage and you've got, I don't know, a headache? Or you've had a bad day personally, or you just feel I don't want to be, well, be here. Well, I've seen guys with? play. Disregard me, I'll tell you that in a minute. But um, we did a gig in the summer where half the band came down with either food poison or a terrible bug, and half of them were being sick. The bass players being sick on stage, and they still did it. I, I said to him, "If you need to go lie down, you get off the stage, yeah. please." Um, but they do it. They do it. The trombone player's done it, feeling ill. He broke his leg in two places and still came on but not just still I, I mean being in the right mindset because you, you've got to go on and you said to me before we, we opened up on the, on the mic live you said to me about you've performed for some very well-known yeah. people including the queen but you get much greater pleasure performing for the general yeah. the general yes the old great unwashed <laughs> the public but you've got to be in the right mindset when you when you get on stage that, that's true but you get when you enter the club and you get dressed and i become and i'll do my hair and get ready so you take on a persona Really? I mean, yeah. the Ray Gelato you see on stage is me, but yeah. people have always said it's just a madder version. Yes. It's like the mask with Jim Carrey. Uh -huh. I'm the mask on stage. That's interesting. See? And yeah. I don't put that on. When I walk over that threshold to get on the stage, something happens and it's magic. It's magic. It can heal you. I've gone on with a blinding migraine a couple of times. By the time I finished, it's gone. Uh -huh. I've played with two herniated discs in my back, which is coming back now yeah. to feel it. And I've hardly been able to move, but you'd never know it. It's funny, isn't it? I'd have known that when I saw you a couple of years ago doing push-ups in the middle yeah. of the set. <laughs> Those days are gone. You wouldn't do that with a herniated <laughs> disc. Yeah, I, but um, I, I think that's it, you know. You, you, I think it comes with the love from what you do. And when that adrenaline and the magic kicks in, you can play stuff that you can't ever play when you're practicing. Yeah. Something happens. And I think the guys feel it. I think the guys get carried along by that energy. Mm. And I think that my energy goes around the whole band. If I'm in a bad mood... Sure, they, they pick it up from you. And it happens from time to time, not much, not much, but time to time, from time to time, if the sound's bad or something goes wrong that upsets me, we're only human, so there's an odd percent, a small percentage of gigs where the guys know it and I can feel they're unsettled because I'm not in a good mood. Hmm. You know, I never tell them off. I never tell them what to do. I never tell them what to play because they're so good they know what to play and it's just a great thing. But do you ever, if you're ever on stage and you, you think, I'm not quite with it tonight, do you have a word with yourself and say, come on, yeah, Ray, pull, it. You, pull yourself together, hate get it. your shit together? Hate it. Yeah. It happens. feels like you've got two left feet on it. It yeah. feels like you've got a stone in your shoe, I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens to me sometimes. You get on, you're agitated and you, you don't know why. Something goes wrong with the sound. Something can screw your night up as well. One of the nights at Ronnie's, um, 
because we did two shows this 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 last Christmas, I was exhausted, exhausted. I mean, two two for seventy five minutes, and they turned the audience around. So you've got to do the whole thing again, and that's tough. That's really tough. Sight like singing and playing now, you know. So you got to, you you got to be fit, got to keep your weight off, and you've got to keep the right frame of mind. But uh, I think the first show on one of the nights, I really didn't. I, I went on, and the mic's not switched on. So they give you the whole big up, and they haven't switched the microphone on. It ruins your night. It's very hard to recover from something like that. And then you'll often find that the Sonny Murphy's Law or Sod's Law, when that happens, something else goes wrong. Of course. Really weird. Yeah. Like a button could pop off yeah. your jacket. <laughs> yeah. It is bizarre. It is, it, it's so weird. And a couple of times we've gone abroad and our luggage haven't turned up. Uh, it happened to me in Italy, in Umbria. I had nothing, nothing. I had to buy a toothbrush, a razor, some pants, and some dodgy. And when I got to go on in street clothes... You don't feel the same. I, I can't do it. No. I do do it, but I can't do it. It's horrible. Yes. It's horrendous. As you said, you, you you are, you create another sort of persona, don't you? Raise your latte. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Whereas you get your suits, presumably all handmade and cut over here in Soho somewhere? No, I um, I, buy, I bought the last two from Haringey. Somebody in Soho did make me one. I get, uh, I, I get them uh, South Kensington and uh -huh. I just bought two in Athens. I oh. found a shop in Athens that did the most amazing. I bought a, Dinner suit, because I like a dinner suit size, but it's a dark mauve, and it's that 50s style. I don't know. God, like, no. and then like it the box cut, suit, box cut yeah. suit with the peg pants. Lovely. With the roll satin lapel. Because I want to get the guys in the dinner suits next, uh -huh. but not, not the stupid dicky ones. The, I've got some blue ones coming with those lovely under-the-collar bow ties lovely. I used to wear. Yeah. Something really elegant, you yes. know. So to me, you see, that's all part of it as well. Presentation is so Ab much Absolutely, part. because people, they're sitting there in Ronnie's, wherever they are, they see you yeah. come on the set. And they immediately get yeah. what, what's going to happen. Yeah, I think, you know, what I do is extremely strenuous. You've seen it. You know, yeah. the, I had a vocal coach a few years back, lovely lady that, that really stalked me out because I was getting very, very tired, the voice. And she just, you know, took me back to basics and helped me uh, do it. And she came to see me at Ronnie's and she, you know, and I'd start to improve and the voice came back. And she said, I don't know how you do that. She goes, that is the worst combination what you do. She goes, I'm not going to tell you not to do it because it's your thing, but... Blowing that sax and then singing in the same keys you've been doing for years. Did she have a word with you about smoking cigars as well? Did she say that wasn't good for you? Or you'd have told her where to stick it? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, no, no. She, I think she was quite organic and believe yeah. what was relaxing is it's not yeah. so bad. You know. uh, cigars haven't bothered my voice yet. <laughs> Probably gives it a more rich, mellow Yeah, well, you don't, anyway. you don't inhale them. You keep it in the, in the mouth. So mm. it's a, it's, yeah, yeah, I'm not pretending it's good. And I probably, you know, it's funny at home or socially, I'm not a drinker, not a big drinker, but I drink at work. I've so, seen you. I've seen you had a little drink at yeah. uh, at the interval at Ronnie's. I like a few scotches, yeah. and in it, in Athens, I liked a few scotches. Well, yeah. but our problems over there, they give you half a glass. Yeah. So you sometimes you do need something to, to lift get you. you through. It. Yeah. Yeah. Just take away the rough edges, as they yeah. say. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a real treat. And I'm really grateful for your time. So it's your 25th year, I think you said, of um, Ray yeah. Gelato and, you, and, and the, the Giants. Giant, and yeah. the Giants. So you've yeah. you got lots of touring going on. You've got a, a new album coming it's out. It's a really good year. We've got a live album from The Hideaway, uh, which is a lovely club in South London. But we're going to call it Live in London. You mm -hmm. don't want to just date it with something like that. We'll acknowledge The Hideaway. That's over four nights. And I've got to sift through all the stuff. <laughs> to find out what's right and what's not right because there's several versions uh -huh. i'm really looking forward to the live album i think it's going to be a lovely thing for the fans and so you've not done it yet you've not recorded it yet oh late 90s we did one. Oh, we've recorded this one yeah yeah, yeah this one i mean oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we recorded yeah. last year okay I, I and it's out it's been no 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 no. i've still got to sift through all the stuff oh, and get it right. mixed okay. and, and select all the songs 
So I'll do that. It'll be out by around the spring. And then we're doing the Blue Note Milan in a couple of weeks. We're doing two gigs in Rome, Barletta. Then we're doing a series of Italian gigs. Then the Blue Note for five nights, which is two shows a night. Then we do Umbria Jazz. We have two shows in Bulgaria. Bands go. We have got quite a lot of shows. Good Fantastic. Shows coming up. Yeah. A few things in London. We've got the Peter Express in June. Doing that in June, which is uh, nice. Ronnie's, I never assume they're going to book me, but hopefully we'll do next Please God, they will again. Yeah, please God, Love to come and see you there. But yeah, it's a busy, good good busy year. Fantastic. Busy year. I, I'm, I'm trying to be careful what I select, because sometimes we box ourselves into things we don't necessarily want to do. And I also get a lot of requests to guest with other bands. I had one in Greece, and I can probably make three times the money, but I don't want to do that. I might do it occasionally, but then I'll say, look, I've got my own band. I think it's detrimental if you do that because people will want that all the time because it's a cheaper option. Yes. I want to hold out my guns to take no, my fair, team out Fair there. play to you. This is what yeah. you've worked for all your life. So yeah, it's true. Stick to it. Well, once again, thank you very much for your Thanks. time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And More than welcome, Steve. Long may your age last in the Giants. Keep on jiving and rocking and doing what you do. It's we fantastic. will. As long as I'm here, we'll do it. God bless you. Take care. Take care. And you too.